0: Listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. Manna in the wilderness. I remember this story from my Sunday school days in Egypt. The Hebrew slaves had cried out to God for release, and Moses had been raised up as this unlikely leader. Let my people go, had been the message Moses had carried to Pharaoh, then followed the ten plagues, the permission to leave, followed by Pharaoh's change of heart, and an ensuing pursuit The crossing of the Red Sea, where the mighty Egyptian army is defeated by the waters themselves. And then into the Sinai wilderness. But what is there to eat in the desert? Don't worry, God is providing manna, bread in the wilderness. And on they sojourned to Mount Sinai. Now, those stories were actually all very dramatic and quite appealing to a young boy, particularly the Red Sea thing and the crashing chariots and all that. Now, I have to confess that when my family went to the old Metropolitan Theater to see Cecil B. DeMille's film, The Ten Commandments, I did find myself rather flagging midway through. I mean, I was probably only eight or nine. The three-hour and 40-minute film had an intermission, and I vividly remember wishing that we could just go home. But for all that, the length of DeMille's film, the Exodus was all good story, almost mythical and magical in its contours. thing is, it's also much more than that. And much more than a long-ago story of signs and wonders wrought by God for our ancient forebears. In the African-American church, the slave church knew this such that the singing and the preaching of that phrase, Let my people go stood as a a powerful counter-narrative of deep hope and stubborn resilience in the midst of slavery and then in the midst of the Jim Crow South. The Exodus story actually remains the defining one for the African-American church. Running through Martin Luther King's free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty we are free at last, continuing right up to this day. Now, I want to suggest that this story of the manna and the quails being graciously provided in the wilderness can speak with a kind of a peculiar power to us. So long as we dare to hear it, to hear its deeper claims, claims that speak to politics, economics, ethics, practices, and choices. Freed from slavery on the other side of the Red Sea from those shackles of Egypt, the whole congregation of the Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. They looked back, but they didn't look back at the things that God had done for them, the release they had been given. They looked back in fear and anxiety. In Egypt, we sat by the flesh pots, by the meat pots. We ate our fill of bread. Oh, man, your memories. Your memories are doing what memories so often do, right? Don't you remember how hard you worked as slaves, how hungry you were in that place? No, no, they don't. Better to have been killed in Egypt, they say, for you, Moses, have brought us out into this wilderness where we'll just starve to death. It's not because they're a particularly bad people or even a a particularly ungrateful people. It's because they are a people whose imaginations have been trained in Egypt. Their imaginations will slowly be opened with the provision of food. And so Exodus continues. In the evening, quails came up and covered the camp, and in the morning was a layer of dew round the camp. When the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a fine, flaky substance, as fine as frost on the ground. And when the Israelites saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. What is it? They'd said. In Hebrew, manu. That's what the word manna means manhu. What is it? It's bread, Moses said. Bread that the Lord has given you to eat. Here, Walter Brueggemann comments Bread from heaven is not given in Egypt, it's given in the wilderness outside of Egyptian definitions of what is possible when there are no resources. The first task is leaving. The second is believing. The second, in a sense, is having renewed imagination. They needed to believe that there was an alternative to Egypt's definition of what was possible and more significantly, the Egyptian way of seeing the world, of consuming and accumulating and holding and exercising power and control. They had to learn that Egypt had been run according to what Brueggemann calls the myth of scarcity, in which those in places of privilege and power believed that they did not yet have enough. And so, in believing this, they fated the rest of that society, most notably those slaves, to a life of hard Scrabble scarcity. Against that kind of way of structuring the world, the freed slaves needed to learn the lyric or liturgy of abundance. The liturgy of abundance, of which Brueggemann says the following. I propose that the lyric of abundance that is evoked by the generosity of the creator sits deep against the myth of scarcity. The lyric of abundance asserts that because the world is held in the hand of the generative, generous God, scarcity is not true. And I mean this not as a pious religious statement, but as a claim about the economy. It's not just for their world either, which is where this ancient story of wonder can begin to place a claim on us. Do we sing a lyric and liturgy of abundance that says there is enough, enough to be shared? Or have our imaginations been captured by our own world's myth of scarcity, one that is, to cite Brueggemann one last time, a myth that is the dominant power of politics and the relentless liturgy of TV commercials? You need More. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't people who struggle against real scarcity. Certainly in our own city we can see it. It's why we collect food for agape table every Sunday night. And there are people sitting here among us for whom meeting a monthly budget on a fixed or limited income is not an easy thing. And there are months when it gets scarce. Absolutely. I'm also not saying that there isn't real scarcity of food in many, many places in our world, that there's no such thing as famine or food shortage. To say that would be to conjure up another sort of myth altogether. Yet, so many of those scarcities are, by and large, of human making. How many famines are created through war? through unsustainable agricultural methods, through a market system that sees land that once produced food now producing a cash crop like coffee beans or sugar cane. We do actually have the capacity to produce enough food for all in our world, yet the structures are against it in so many ways. And then within our own country, don't even think of famines in Africa or food shortages in the aftermath of a natural disaster. Within our own country, within the affluent Western world, there are deep, deep problems of food waste. According to a 2016 CBC story, in Canada... 31 billion dollars worth of food ends up in landfills or composters every year. That's close to 40% of the food we produce into the dumpster or into a composter. Estimates suggest that close to half of that wasted food, now, lest you begin to think, well, those food producers... Those manufacturers and retailers, they're so wasteful. The estimates are suggesting that close to half of that wasted food is actually tossed in our own home garbage bins. We buy it, we take it home, we fail to use it or we use it and then we don't want leftovers, scrape, scrape, scrape. We just toss it out and we say, man, the cost of food is high. That scarcity myth, that scarcity myth is not just about food either. The restlessness with enough and the sufficient has been planted deep in our bones. People lined up this past week to purchase the latest iPhone. Now, maybe not as many people lined up as Apple would hope, But Apple and Samsung and all the rest will never see their own sales growth as being enough. There's always more. Even if you set aside questions of commodities and consumerism, you still witness that desire to have more, that that it's never quite enough. And so people get restless, terribly restless, with the state of their investment portfolios or with their relationships, or with their own bodies. It isn't enough. I want more, or better, or different, or stronger, or better looking, or, or, or. And then I'll be happy. But those are largely mythic longings. The ark of the Exodus story says that the old has been left behind in Egypt. And that the people now stand in a place of learning a new liturgy that proclaims that there is enough. The enough must be learned day by day because hoarding of that manna is impossible. In Exodus, if one tries to gather more than you need for the day, it just goes bad, gets full of worms overnight. Then the next lesson that will be learned on the other side of the Sinai Desert, when they finally cross the River Jordan, is that the liturgy of abundance is to be lived out in the sharing. And so the Torah, the law, is full of details as, as to how the land is to be treated and harvested, how food is to be shared so that no one goes without. It's marked by laws intended to ensure that the land itself is allowed to rest, and that debts are never allowed to grow to the point that they will sentence any one family to cross-generational poverty. Debt release is embedded in the law because there is enough. But it's hard to leave the old behind, which is why the freed slaves could rhapsodize about the flesh pots and the bread that they'd had in Egypt. In our case, it's hard to leave the old behind when so much of it is systemic, international, multinational. How do you begin to change that kind of a system that creates the myth of scarcity and leaves some hungry and leaves some with more than they could possibly need, still wanting more? How do you begin to change it when it's systemic, international, multinational? Most of us will never even get close to moving in the spheres of influence we imagine might be able to affect some real change. But but for all of that, we can cultivate alternate imaginations. We can choose to shift our own expectations and our own habits around food, commodities, bottom lines, and what things truly are meant to be valued and treasured. We can look at one of some, what some of these church-connected agencies are managing to do, whether it's the Food Grains Bank, or Mennonite Central Committee, or the Primates Fund of the Anglican Church of Canada and say, that is good work at alternate imagination. Maybe, just maybe, we can begin to learn that ultimately the answer to that question, Manu, what is it? Is it is enough? And enough is not a bad thing at all. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.